I'm here to discuss Sarah Palmer with Joel Bacco. Before we get to that, I'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further. Hi, I'm Joel Bacco. I uh, publish my work at lostinthemovies.com. I have YouTube podcasts on Apple Podcasts and other platforms and Patreon and all of that. Patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Every, everything's got the same name for easy uh, tracking. So uh, my main thing I'm probably known for is uh, Journey Through Twin Peaks, my video essay series on um, all three seasons in the film. I guess we could start off with the final dossier because I know this is one where people can either this lands for them or it doesn't at all. In the final dossier, Tammy reports that her father was a subcontractor on the Manhattan Project, which I would presume that means that they live close proximity to White Sands, New Mexico from Part 8. There was the successful bomb test that was coded Trinity. And then also 11 years after that fact that Sarah would ingest the frog moth that we see. I know there's a lot we mentioned about Part 8, but was there anything you thought of with Sarah Palmer relative to what we see in Part 8? Well, I remember when that aired, there was some debate over, was this girl somebody we knew? Was it the log lady? Was it Sarah Palmer? Those were the two that I remember people speculating. and uh, Or was it just a random person? And I know some people much preferred it to be sort of somebody who was not related to the larger uh, ensemble. And I spoke to uh, Martha Nockhamson, who wrote the book, The Passion of David Lynch, David Lynch Swerves, TV, I think, is it TV Revisited, her latest book. She very much hates the idea that it, it's there and she was sort of adamant about not really seeing it that way and it's i think it's actually an interesting question i'm actually i'm pretty comfortable with it being sarah i kind of like it being sarah in some ways i don't think it quote unquote has to be but i think it it certainly mark frost is right out there in the open saying that's who this was uh, in the final dossier he makes it explicit so I guess the question, the only question remaining with that is, was this something that Frost thought of after they wrote it was like, this girl should be Sarah? Or was it like, let's write about Sarah as a girl. And that's like, which came first, you know, chick, chicken or the egg kind of thing. And I suspect that he did say it to Lynch and Lynch at the very least was like, hmm, or OK, like didn't say no, because Frost has described it in Q&A's as like something we wanted to let people guess about but i'm going to reveal who that was in the book or something like before the book so it was like he said it as if him and lynch were both in on it but it's interesting that lynch doesn't make it explicit in the show you know he could have even done that in the credits there's a lot of characters like richard horn we find out he's richard horn like i don't know 10 episodes before it well maybe not 10 but like way before it's made explicit on screen but yet he chose with this girl not to make that clear. So I don't know. It's interesting. What did you think when you first watched it? Did you think this is Sarah Palmer? Strangely enough, that's actually exactly what I was thinking of because I was thinking of how that this would probably tie into a larger framework of Twin Peaks. I think of with part eight, there's so much about that just permeates everything all across all three seasons, Fire Walk With Me and all the books. I think I was looking, I was like, well, if this girl was like, I don't know, 12 or 13, that would make her relatively close to the age of Sarah. And then it was not necessarily anything with the frog moth, but it was when the woodsman was talking about the horse, and then you hear at the very end, 
for me, that was at least what made me think that this has to be Sarah. So that's when later on, when I found out for the final dossier that people were, at least some people were up in arms about it. I personally was a little surprised, but for me, it being Sarah's always rung true. Well, there's a few interesting things about it. So one is, yeah, the horse at the end. Also, the fact that the frog bug has this pointy nose and the it's a jumping creature. And later we see the jumping man, the nose poke out when she takes her face off in the bar. And then also when he's coming down the stairs and Sarah's face is stretched out over it. So there are some strong links there. She says a comment about, I just know things when she says she knows where the boy lives, which you can relate to Sarah having a sort of a psychic sixth sense uh, throughout the series. One thing that's interesting to me is the casting. Now I had heard that the actress was like an indigenous background and she has a name. I'm trying, I can't remember the name offhand, but it was like a name that seemed like maybe um, it, it was uh, I, I can't remember exactly where, but like it, it was like a name that was like a native American word. And so that's interesting because <laughs> Twin Peaks is sort of notoriously like an almost all white show. So if it is Sarah, it would be interesting that this is like one of the few times Lynch chose to cast an actress who was not like of a exclusively or primarily white background to play someone who who is. So that's sort of an odd little thing there. The age does work out pretty well. I think the girl is like, whether she's like 11 or 12 or 13, like she's almost exactly the age Grace Zabriskie would have been then. I think maybe even a little older than Sarah Palmer in the books, but like Grace Zabriskie is like, I think a few years older than Sarah Palmer's like official age anyways. So like, there's so many things that do line up there. And I think, you know, with anything Lynch, the question ultimately is like, does it work for you? Does it resonate on some emotional psychological level? And I do, yeah, I, I don't know that I could explain exactly why, but I do like the idea that the girl is Sarah. I also liked, or, you know, was interested in toying with the idea that she wasn't anybody we knew either. So that I wasn't against that, but the Sarah thing, um, I kind of like. With Mark Frost, he definitely has a big thing for the occult. But uh, before we get into any of those connotations, one of the things I was thinking about with the frog moth is that, do you think that going by the logic that Sarah, do you think that the frog moth chose her at random? Or do you think there's something more deliberate about it? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, my instinct is that it was purposeful, but then I think about it and I'm like, why do I think that? And is that actually, is that narratively more interesting or not? And I'm not really sure. Um, you could have caught me off guard with that. Uh, let me defer it and say, well, what do you think about that? You feel like it was. For a period, I thought it was something that they chose at random, but I was thinking about the parallels. Uh, if we're going to go with the parallels of Sarah and Leland, and I know that there's a lot of ambiguity with Leland and Bob, but if we're going with what Leland says before his death, where it was basically a violation of sorts before he was possessed, I think there's something similar to that as well, where the frog moth, where I believe that I couldn't really articulate how it would pick, but I think the fact that she was young and vulnerable, it coincides with Leland and Bob. And again, I, I know it's a little wishy-washy in terms of how the frog moth would pick, but... I do think there's some about the young and impressionable aspect because the only other people we see, they're on the older end. There's the car mechanic and the woman at the diner. And I know that those are parallels to Ed and Norm in some capacity, but I think the precedent that was being set, at least what I got from it, was admittedly more so in the realm of the fact that she was so much younger and there's so much more that this uh, entity could probably get from it. 
And it's very thematically linked to Twin Peaks as a whole because you have this very innocent sort of first love where she's kissing the boy and blushing. She goes up to a room and it's all very sweet and innocent. And then this creature comes in through the window, just like Bob and like crawls inside of her. And it's like this corruption of something that should be sort of sweet and something that is like a sort of a rite of passage that has been twisted somehow. Now, what's interesting is with Laura, and I've said this sort of as well to people who, when we talk about like, when people analogize why, you know, the frog bug with Sarah with like Bob and Leland and then Bob and Laura and all of that, it's like, well, Bob is in a way for, for Laura and Leland both, there's the sense that he's the mask of some like abuse, you know, whether or not you think it's also a spiritual aspect and all of that, there is like a very real human grounded psychological phenomenon that's taking place. But what would that be with the, with Sarah, with the, you know, the New Mexico girl, like all we see beforehand is something that's, that's totally harmless and, and kind of a, a nice thing. Like the, her first walk home with the boy and he gives her a kiss and she goes up to her room. She's thinking about him listening on the radio. What is the thing in her life that this frog bug infestation would be like a metaphor for to put it that way and i'm not sure i have a, an answer to that but it seems like without that it it is kind of missing something that would link it to this larger thematic pattern this is the part where mark frost occultic fascination in his books come in i guess we'll go with the secret history first is that the frog moth this thing emerges 11 years after the bomb goes off and if we're going with the research that i've done for jack parsons and alistair crowley both in their real world history and in the secret history i do know that alistair crowley he did end up uh, instructing jack parsons to basically make use of white sands new mexico for, I believe it was the Arroyo Seco. Uh, it was like a devil's gate of sorts. And it was almost like one of the seven portals to hell. And the fact that the bomb went off in such close proximity with someone like Jack Parsons, it really does highlight to me like the true evil that would be within the vicinity of that desert and what would be in Sarah Palmer at that point. Yeah, I think there's definitely... I mean, it's part of part eight. I mean, that is, it's part eight, even though it's divided into three or four segments, at least from the atomic bomb explosion on, some would argue even from Mr. C getting shot on, there's like a, a sort of a continuous line or thread throughout it. So the atomic bomb this certainly leads to the frog bug coming into the girl's uh, bedroom and crawling inside her mouth, which still <laughs> gives me the willies. I remember watching that. I, it was the only episode I watched with like a big group of people because a bunch of relatives were in town. So it was like my aunt, my sister, who had only seen the first, she hadn't seen any of the rest of the return. She had just seen seasons one and two. And so we were all like watching, they're watching the whole atomic bomb. Thing. And then at the end, like the bugs crawling and we're like, no, 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 don't do it. She like yawns. It's coming closer. We're all like, oh God, <laughs> oh no classic lynch like showing you what's going to happen and then just following through on it as you're like no it's like it makes me think two of the like the bum behind winkies in uh Mulholland drive where it's like you know what's coming you know what's coming it's coming here it is and you're just like you <laughs> powerless to to stop it that's the thing is that lynch is always good at depicting a true evil uh, it's one of those things where you know most horror movies from my experience where you kind of know it's coming a lot of cases but for him stuff like you know the thing at the dumpster in mahalan drive or the frog moth they're just stuff like that that just never stops being horrifying 
yeah, and that notion of evil is, I think that's something I want to come back to with Sarah. I think when we get to the later season three material, like the non-part eight stuff, because I have a lot of thoughts about like the question of Judy and possession and what Sarah is or isn't and, and her role in that narrative. But we'll save that. <laughs> this is a corn to Tammy. And I'm going to bring up some of my real life research is that in the final dossier, Tammy, she refers to this thing, uh, Jow Day, as an entity of Sumerian mythology that rips apart uh, its victims for nourishment and thrives on human suffering. The thing with that, though, is that if you try to look up anything about Jow Day or any other translations, at least on my research, it's really all about pertaining to Twin Peaks Season 3. Like, I haven't found a single thing from before that. And normally I would just accept that you could deem this as misreporting from Tammy or maybe Frost was kind of nudging you to do your own research. But I could have sworn that in conversations with Mark Frost did say something about how it was based off of an actual entity, or at least an entity in a particular mythology. Did you have anything, any takes on this, if this would add to what's in Sarah Palmer? Yeah, his statement in uh, Conversations with Mark Frost, as I recall, is the great David Bushman book, is pretty, it's kind of ambiguous. Like, it sounds like he's saying he found, he researched and found this Sumerian god called Jaude, but I feel like actually what happened, or, or if you read it closely, he's saying, not that he found a creature with that name or a spirit with that name, but that he found a concept that he then paired with that name. Like, I don't think the name is act. I think the name is made up <laughs> um, by, by him. And what's interesting, him or Lynch, this is the interesting thing. Martha Nockamson's book, she actually quotes someone close to Lynch saying that David Lynch made that up on the spot, which I found really surprising because it sounds like such a Mark Frost thing. Like, so Gordon Cole's speech where he says a, uh, what does he say? An ancient... I think he said that it was once Jowde, but over time became Judy. I think that's where he leaves it, at least when he's talking about it with Albert and Tammy. A powerful entity or something like that. I think it's an extreme negative force. He says that too, but I feel like he also says like something about an ancient or a very old entity or something like that. You know, he certainly doesn't say a Sumerian god. <laughs> so, but it's still, I just assumed, oh, that's a Mark Frost touch. And according to this porting or this book, it was... Uh, no, it was like Lynch who came up with the name Jow Day. And they spell it two different ways, too. It's like J-O-W-A-D-A-Y or something, I think. And then how is it spelled in the dossier? I've come across a couple of them. I believe in the final dossier, it's J-O-U-D-Y. But when yes. I look online, it's people spelling it. I believe it's J-O-W-D-A-Y. Yes. And then the other one was, she said in Martha Nogams' book that Lynch called it j-o-u either space or dash d-e-i so like jow day so there are there are so many yeah so okay so to bring it back to sarah though the question of like the judy thing is fascinating to me because it brings up you know supposedly we came into season three with the question who is judy and we got our answer but we still kind of come out wondering who is judy because is the experience like people have assumed experiment equals judy equals possessing sarah but really it's the frog moth that's inside of sarah and the frog moth that's kind of associated with the jumping man i had a sort of a fun or corny depending how you're looking at it thought of like what if the jumping man is a jumping lady and then you kind of fold it over and it's jude it's judy <laughs> like literally the first two and last two letters would be j-u-d-y <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's, you know, is, is, is the jumping man. I, but that's not a very common, I think most people see them as different entities. And John Thorne is interesting in that he thinks he does not, he does not accept that the experiment and Judy are one and the same, um, which is interesting. You know, that's actually something because I thought the two were both the same, but the in the recent, I would even say the last two or three weeks, I start considering if they are different because, I mean, I know that people, in the case of season three with the end credits where people kind of look at what's listed and they kind of take that to heart or they kind of like bend it in, in certain ways. Yeah, no, I, I have considered if there's a reason why it was cons- it was called the experiment because you think of Carl Strucken where it's just a bunch of question marks and then he's not presented as the fireman until he says it to Andy. It's, it's funny to think that when you look at stuff just based off of the credits, uh, that can spark a lot of discourse. I strongly suspect it was intended to be Judy because David Bushman asks Mark Frost a question about the experiment. And he says, experiment. And he says, yeah, that's what the creature was called in the credits, so experiment and experiment model and the two things. And he says, that's interesting. I never, that I didn't even know that. Like I didn't see it in the credits. It was never something they discussed. So it's a name Lynch came up with. And I think Bushman asks him, well, what do you call it then? And he said, well, I can't say that would get too close to something, which my guess would be they called it Judy. <laughs> and so he's, he realized as he was discussing it, oh, maybe, or, or, you know, that was something he knew already that Lynch didn't want revealed was that that creature was Judy. So it's like it, that hints, I think, that that, it, they, that experiment is supposed to be Judy. And I think everyone was just primed to accept the second that Gordon Cole describes Judy in, in part 18, 17, I think everyone in the audience was primed to see the experiment because up till then it had been who's the mother right well the mother must be experiment because we see this sort of female shape spirit okay mother the feminine name that goes with that okay now judy we've got another name to go with it so it's like people were kind of waiting to put something to the experiment now it's one of those questions where it's like people there there are certain conclusions people come to that sometimes you have to go back and pick it apart and be like is this actually the case you know that that's one of them i think another one would be is Chet Desmond like, is, is he like whisked off to the lodge when he grabs the ring? And I think season three kind of hints that maybe that was the case. But if you look at Firewalk with me, it just freezes before he takes the ring and we never find out more. Another one would be not to get too far off track, but another example of that, I think there's stuff throughout Twin Peaks where it's like these ideas just kind of gain momentum. Uh, okay. I know another one, the idea that Teresa the ring leads to death or something. Cause like Teresa was wearing the ring and all that's true. But if you pause the scene where she's being killed, she's not wearing the ring quite conspicuously, not because she's holding up the hand that would have the ring on it and it's not on it. And I always found that fascinating. So it's like, so wait a second, she's killed when she's not wearing the ring. It's almost like it had to be, but then why is it on the corpse? That could just be a continuity error, but anyways, so yeah, to get to the question of experiment and Judy, I think, I think there's almost better evidence off screen than on screen to connect the two, if that makes sense. And this is the part we're going to be going through a bit of a time jump. I think of Sarah Palmer's role in The Secret Diary. And my biggest takeaways were, at least from my recent reread, is like just how distinctly passive she was as a character, despite being in the same home with Laura, obviously throughout the whole book. 
But the other one is that it's around, I believe it's around 87 slash 88. It's when Laura, after she has her abortion. And the thing is that Maddie, she seems to have that, you know, she seems to have a certain foresight when Laura's in trouble. So she calls her. And the thing is that Sarah, at least by Laura's own admission, Sarah, she actually looks at Laura with quote unquote pure jealousy. Did you have any takeaways from that scene uh, in particular or just Sarah's role in The Secret Diary? I think the secret diary in particular is just a great portrait of, I don't want to draw with too broad of a brush, but certain like mother daughter relationships, I think. And, and actually I'm, I'm sort of glad we're pivoting to this point because I think when we bring Judy back in, it's in the, at, probably at the end of this discussion, as we get into the later season three stuff, it'll be more resonant because the really like the emotional basis of Sarah Palmer is a mother with this sort of fraught relationship to her teenage daughter who is caught in this, this sort of whirlpool of like denial and guilt and tension and unspoken things. And uh, certainly like mental illness is a very strong sort of recurring presence in the Sarah, the long Sarah story, like stretching over you know all of her scenes in the missing pieces she has a line where she says to laura it's happening again when she realizes she's wearing the sweater she thought she forgot and she's kind of having a uh, basically a little bit of a nervous breakdown and actually the line in the original firewalk with me script was not it's happening again it was oh no it's happening i'm having another breakdown so like she's actually more explicit about what it is psychologically she's she's going through there and they changed it to make it this more re, you know sort of poetic resonant line that goes with what the giant says in in twin peaks but as with all of these things particularly with the palmer family it has that kind of mythic quality and it also has that very grounded psychological quality as well as as to what's going on with this family where you have a mother who is living on the edge of her sanity to a certain extent i think the constant change smoking, the the long blank passages where Leland has drugged her and she's out of it. And it's a great portrait of a family that seems quite solid. And what's the word I'm looking for? Like the presentation that they give at a glance is like, you know, picture perfect probably. Yeah. Like just this perfect little middle-class upper middle-class family in Twin Peaks. And, you know, Sarah has a certain charm, I think, certainly Grace Zabriskie does in, 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 you know, that I think she brings the role at times when, when she's allowed to, that Sarah is used very sparingly throughout Twin Peaks, potently, but sparingly. So, so at a glance they're this, but it's like a slightest touch and the whole thing just shatters because they are so deeply dysfunctional and it's a great, great portrait of a dysfunctional, I think particularly a dysfunctional upper middle class affluent family. Like there's different, I think dysfunction can show itself in different ways based on like the area, the, I think like particularly like in America and other places, I think class wise, it takes on different manifestations. And this is like a very particular type of dysfunction where there's, like a really toxic repression that's taking place and it's affecting and infecting everyone in different ways. And Sarah is such a key component of that, even though she's the least kind of featured 
throughout much of the narrative. And then in season three, she's left to kind of carry that weight by herself. Uh, before then, it's really like Leland and Laura, and she's sort of caught in the middle of it. This is a good thing, because um, I'm glad you brought up the parallels with the dynamic with Laura and Sarah. When I think of the Fire Walk Me, Missing Pieces, and also even Secret Diary, is that I think of it more so, like I was saying about the passivity of Sarah, is that I think that for Laura to be where she's at in the Secret Diary and Fire Walk Me, is that whether you believe it's Leland or Bob, it's at least Leland's body that he's basically the active evil in her life, and then Sarah's basically the passive evil. Because I think of, like, Grace Zabriskie, when she talked about in Laura's Ghost, well, one of the things that she was thinking about is that this is a woman where she's kind of thinking about, like, how did she allow this to happen type of situation. And uh, the thing is that you think of how protective a mother would be under, like, you know, any, you know, big or small circumstances. And I just think of, like, what it is that really prompts this passivity. Like, whether you think it's, like, the fantastical aspect of the frog moth in her, or if it's Judy, or... It's just like Leland's control. Did you have any stances on how she was and how she kind of coexisted with Leland? Yeah, I, in terms of the supernatural aspects, I always tend to see that in reverse. Like it, there's obviously a supernatural, 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 mystical component to Twin Peaks. But I think it always has to start from like what I would call the psychological. Maybe I know Lynch isn't that into psychology. Maybe you could call it emotional or I just mean the inner kind of workings of the character and then it sort of manifests out into some sort of spiritual supernatural component so i would start with the fact that this is like an extremely common motif in stories of incest particularly i think incest i mean probably across all class lines but particularly in this sort of like suburban like more comfortable milieu where it's like the mother's just it's a quiet it's a silence i guess i should say a refusal to engage that the daughter feels I'm talking particularly about like father daughter incest. And there's like lots of stories of this as one story. I always think of when I think of Sarah Palmer, which is, I think it was a former Miss America or something. She came out in the eighties or nineties with like the story of how she'd been abused by her father growing up. And she remembered that one time when her father was in a room, she heard her mother approaching outside the door and thought, Oh my God, she's going to come finally and stop this and open the door. And she heard the footsteps stop and turn around. And it was like, and that's, I've heard that type of story in many different situations. Like that's, so that's, I think the core of the Sarah Palmer story is the mother who turns around. And I, I yes, I do think, I don't think it's, it's simply like a, dis, it's all sorts of factors conditioning that there's still some component, you know, there's some component of individual choice in that as well. But Leland is obviously an extremely controlling individual towards everyone close to him, certainly in his family. I think it's an interesting choice to have him be the lawyer to this big businessman. I think that rings true in a way as well. It's not like he is the big CEO boss guy. He has a great cushy job, but he goes and works for someone else. And then he comes back and he's king of his own castle. And he's makes sure that he is the dictator in that household. So there's just... It's like she's been put into a groove. And I think that's where the frog moth thing is sort of resonant in a way is like things are always acting upon her. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a choice or a responsibility in it, but she's been placed into this groove and the groove gets deeper and deeper and deeper as the years go by. And you can just see this in the, the whole implicit history of the Palmer family of the years and years of something going on of her having these blank spots in her memory, just 
sort of flitting around looking for things that she already has on, like finding these distractions, finding these coping mechanisms. And you can just see it getting deeper and deeper that this rut that she's in. And it really just continues after her husband and her daughter are gone. And and I think results in what we see in season three. Yeah, so this actually builds off on the what you were saying about the control aspect of Leland. I think of the scene, The Missing Pieces, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think if we're looking the order, that would have technically be Sarah's first scene had it been in the movie. Grace Zabriskie talked about it. It must have been the, back in the days of Wrapped in Plastic where, no, it could have been Wrapped in Plastic, but there's at some point where she did talk about how of all the scenes that she wishes was in Firewalk With Me was that. And it wasn't because she thought it was a happy family, but because there's a certain way that Leland is like holding all their hands and kind of putting them into a trance for, I, I don't think that was the word she used, but basically putting them into a trance and laughing in hysteria. Do you think that kind of sets a tone for even the lighter moments always had a nefarious underbelly? Like, do you think there's ever a good Leland or maybe he wasn't bad on most days, but, and that's why they could kind of, or at least why Sarah would kind of bypass it or... Do you think there's anything else going on with that? No, I think that's I, I think that's a compelling reading of it. Is I've heard the sort of the argument that the scene should be in the movie because it shows happier moments as a family, but there is like a continuity to it. It's the manic quality, right? Like it's with Leland, he swings from one extreme to the other, but even the swing itself is kind of the through line. Like the fact that he is he's always at these extremes that there's no sort of like reasonable middle ground with him. And I think particularly, I don't know. I mean, I think he's Noah, he's Noah cross in a way uh, from Chinatown, this monster who is also very charming, which again, I think is a common motif in these types of incest stories and experiences where it's like the father is often beloved by like uh, the people around, like they're seen as like these extremely like charming fun people to be around and there is like a sort of a continuity there in a way of it's another it is another aspect of the control you can be controlling in the way he is at the dinner scene where he's physically invading her space and terrorizing her and you can also do it in more passive ways you can do it in sort of deflective ways of using your charisma as a kind of a weapon where it's like well, how can you be mad at this person? Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm misunderstanding who they are or something because how could they be like this? And I think really probably the most manipulative moment for Leland that we see in the movie, um, I suppose this might be controversial in the sense that like a lot of people see it as one of his most redemptive moments is actually the moment where he comes in to her room and is very gentle with her and kisses her on the forehead says, I love you. Good night, princess. That's almost the cruelest twist of the knife at all, of all, because he breaks her down and then kind of pathetically comes in to build her up, like on the terms that he broke her down in. You know what I mean? Like that's almost in some ways the most abusive aspect of it is the coming in after the damage has been done and not even, he doesn't apologize. He doesn't say anything. You know, there's no reconciliation there. It's just another way of him being, you know, locking her, locking his princess in the tower now where the dragon who is him can't get her, except he can because he does. So, I, yeah, I see all of that stuff is uh, continuous with like a portrait and a view of a very grounded uh, vision of an abuser. 
that's an incredibly remarkable and perceptive uh I really don't have any words for it because um, if we're going with the dinner table scene and then the scene going to a room, my biggest takeaway, at least for the dinner table scene, is that I think that apart from the charm that he would usually pull off, I think that the way he acts at the dinner table scene, I get the sense based off of Laura and Sarah's body language is that this doesn't happen often, but it's also clearly not the first time. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, where it's like, I I mean, I couldn't really give you a timeline of like when it could happen, but it's just some that's very irregular and they kind of overlook it otherwise. But I do think of uh, how Sarah, where this is probably the only scene where she ever takes like an active role of saying stop it, but then just kind of stops and just kind of lets it play out. And also, I guess uh, it's probably good to mention now is that the use of color with Sarah and Firewalk with me, where if we're excluding the blue sweater scene and the very last scene with Sarah when she says goodnight to Laura, she does wear all red throughout it. So I guess uh, to shift into the more Lynchian aspect of how he uses color, did you have any takeaways of like how red is? Because I personally always view it as a more ominous color, that there's something just evil of sorts that's brewing in it. And I can't quite articulate too much beyond that, but I do think there's something deliberate about the use of the color red and why she wears it in like nearly every single scene. It's funny. I've, I've heard you mention that on some other podcasts and I thought that's interesting. Like I don't necessarily, um, I feel like I, I respond to color like more intuitively. It's hard for me to sort of pin it to something exactly. I thought I, if, if he brings that up, I don't know that I'll have anything in particular to say, but now spontaneously, I actually, as you were saying that it actually made me think of something, which is, I think maybe it is a, it's a suggestion, not so much that she is like the source of a fire or that she is, you know, emanating some sort of evil as that she's in the fire. She's the character in some ways in the house who is like caught in the most tension, you know, like we were talking about how it's like with Leland and Laura pulling back and forth and, and her kind of literally in the middle in some of the scenes where she's between them in the breakfast scene. And that's a scene where she's wearing a red bathrobe and lights a cigarette, come to think of it. It's like, yeah, there's this like sense of like a simmering tension that she's at the center of that she's caught in. So yeah, in that sense, I think in a way, it's almost like the energy of Laura and Leland that is that they're pushing off of themselves in some way. She gets caught in it. Does that make sense? Like it's like Laura's always like fleeing, escaping, trying to go out and through sex and drugs and all these other things. Leland is always in this sort of denial, like shaking off whatever he's doing, finding ways to rationalize or project it onto other people. So like both of them are kind of moving and Sarah's caught in a more static position. So yeah, in that sense, it's like, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's like the fireplace hearth of the family that instead of warming, everyone is being uh, burnt to a crisp. Since we're mentioning that everything about red and fire and also the cigarettes, um, you think I think of that scene where Donna, when she comes in to see Laura before she goes on her night out, and it's like two full ashtrays, just completely, yeah. almost it, it's it's pretty over the top, but not quite to being absurd. But it's legitimately two full ashtrays to the point where, and put aside the fact that it doesn't make any sense, but Donna says, "If I had a nickel for every cigarette your mom smoked, I'd be dead." But <laughs> It does stop to showcase that there is something wrong with Sarah. I mean, you could say service level about cigarettes, but in terms of how Lynch uses fire and how cigarettes, in my opinion, seem to be a precursor, I think even then, I mean, I'm sure obviously uh, Judy wasn't a thing at that point, but there was something 
deep within Sarah that was wrong. She definitely, she has the personality of, this is, I don't know, I don't want to generalize here, but I think she works also as a portrait of an addict. The line she has to Laura, when it's like her first scene, in some ways her most normal scene, where they almost seem like a ordinary mom and daughter without all of the other additional deeper problems we know they have, where she's coming in with the grocery, she got the cigarette and Laura takes it out of her mouth and then she walks off with it in a way that shows she's comfortable holding a cigarette. And her mom says, Sarah says, uh, Hey, what do I always say? If you don't start, then you'll never, you'll never become a smoker or something. You, what does she say? I can't remember the exact line. I, but it's I think like, you got it right. Um, I think that sounds right, at least from my recall. And, and that makes me think of what I was saying earlier about her getting stuck in a groove. And it's like, she's, she's a, a person who like at a certain point in her life, maybe early on certain things were set and they got deeper and deeper and deeper. And she looks back. I don't, she doesn't look at it as you can escape from this trap you're in or this groove you're in. It's like, it's more like, well, don't get in it in the first place. And maybe she can help Lara avoid getting caught in that. But for herself, it's too late. In the missing pieces, there's another scene where Cigarette seems to be pretty central because it's the part where Sarah, she basically finds out that Laura lied about getting the textbooks. And the thing is that when she slams her hand down on the piano, <laughs> yeah, you see that. that like Cigarette just like kind of flash up. I never noticed that. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so I think that like it's uh, it's pretty prominent in Fire Walk With Me and uh, oddly enough, more so in the missing pieces about just that precursor to fire. Again, just combined with her wearing red, it just seems like they're just something like, like I said, I, I take it as like a passive evil, but I think there's something that Lynch is extremely deliberate about because those two things are just too pertinent as filmography for me to overlook. But did you think there was anything, just because, again, we're on the topic of colors that are important to Lynch's filmography, was there anything that you felt that pertained to the blue sweater about why she would have that kind of quasi-meltdown? And that's the sweater that she's wearing in that scene, right? That she mm -hmm. asked Laura, have you seen my blue sweater? I don't know. I, I Nothing comes to mind for me, but it's interesting that you might talking about how Sarah's usually wearing red throughout the film. And in this scene, it's Laura who's wearing red and Sarah's wearing blue. I don't I don't know what to make of that, but it's, it's a thought. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that I, I take blue where it's like this, like there's almost like a certain sadness. I know people refer to it as some dreamlike, but I think I always look at blue in the lens of blue velvet because I think of that movie as like, I guess no other way to say it, almost like a blueprint, if you will of how lynch like has his archetypes because uh of course like with the blue curtains and the blue velvet there's something distinctly sad about what dorothy valance is going through and so i think that i merely just have that carry over throughout his filmography through that lens yeah that's a, that's a good point that is it almost makes me wonder if his whole thing about like using blue sparingly in twin peaks at least until firewalk with me where there's a lot of blue but you know using it sparingly before that was almost like he was in his blue period when he made blue velvet now he's in his red period with twin peaks or something it's like it may almost be aesthetic as much not that there isn't other you know emotional or thematic things attached to the aesthetic but like it may almost just be a style thing of like this is the red movie <laughs> or this is the red show that was the blue movie since we're kind of going through like certain things that kind of set sarah off i'm thinking about like the spiked milk that leland has this is the one where there's a clear-cut passivity on sarah's end where it's like she has to know that there's something weird going on yeah but i to cycle back to part eight I think of how that connects to the drink full and descend because it is basically her, like she has to drink every last drop, like at the behest of Leland. 
and the things that she literally does descend because before she passes out, she sees the white horse. A little side tangent, but I was surprised then the days of Wrapped in Plastic that Mark Frost did confirm that the horse was a harbinger of death, which makes sense, but I'm just surprised that Mark Frost would actually uh, confirm that in any capacity. Yeah, it's interesting because that's that's one of those things where I think that is something that he, that Lynch came up, came up with and he sort of figured out his own thoughts on it. So, you know, we were talking about that with like the New Mexico girl, if that's Sarah or not. That might be something where Lynch and Frost did discuss it beforehand. Or, But the horse, I think, is something where clearly that was something Lynch brought in. And Frost, I think he says to David Bushman, he's like, yeah, I, that was like a visual idea Lynch had. And I sort of looked into the or thought about the thematic literary antecedents to it. I would guess that Lynch has never said that the horse is death. I don't know that he has. And I mean, even to Mark Frost or to himself, I feel like it's one of those things where I could go, I, I don't know if I'm 50-50, but I could probably go either way. Like maybe he had a specific thought about it. I don't think it was that it was death, but like had a specific thought and kept it to himself or he just, the imagery came to him and he was like, yes, sort of like with the creamed corn. There was creamed corn in the commissary that day. And he was like, hmm, I'm going to have my son hold this in his hands. Later, you know, turned into Garmin Bozia, but at that moment, it was just, there's something here, you know? On the topic of the horse, there was a chapter in conversation with Mark Frost where he kind of confirmed the obvious. He says that Lynch doesn't really like it when he kind of like puts out like any answers in any capacity. So I always took that the horse, while Frost did mean at the time that it was a harbinger of death, I think that Lynch, not out of spite, but I think he took the horse and just kind of made its own thing for season three to retroactively change it for everything else. He does that with a lot of motifs and symbols, I think. There's like stuff that sort of cohered into a particular reading, let's say, and then suddenly it shifts gears in season three, it goes in a different direction. I actually feel like, and often that's like, that sort of enriches and expands the iconography, I do feel like the one thing to get off on a tangent a little bit that I was a little disappointed with how straightforwardly season three handled, like I felt like it actually narrowed its meaning in a way was the ring. Because to me, the interesting thing about the ring and Firewalk with me is its implicit association with knowledge and awareness and sort of recognition. Like it always seems to play into a pattern where it's being presented or offered or accepted in terms of, I know this about usually about Leland and Bob and all of that. And I'm not like going to deny it. Like, like you do, you know, that's, I think part of the power of Laura receiving it at the end of the movie, both just in sort of a general thematic sense, but also literally in the sense, this is a piece of evidence from Leland's murder of Laura. Her putting it on is saying to him, I know you killed Teresa. And I'm not going to like pretend you didn't. And now she has to die as well. You know, it's like, so there's, I like that aspect of it. I like the fact that it, it's actually kind of a positive symbol throughout, despite its eerie connotations. And then I feel like in season three, it's just like, no, the ring is this thing you put on dead people to send them to the lodge, which is like, okay, but <laughs> that's, that's a little less interesting to me than, what's going the the stuff going on i mean there's something in firewalk with me that i just love which again this is could this could just be even if it is coincidence though it, it could be like you know the jungian concept of like synchronicity where it it's seemingly a coincidence that has this stronger resonance but 
when Teresa is with Leland, the left hand holding the ring is always like suppressed by him. It's when they're in bed together, it's like under him. So like, you can't see it when she comes out to greet him for like, they're going to have an orgy or whatever. She, you can't see it because it's covered by an ice pack, which is also interesting because the arm goes numb. So there's sort of a like playing with the symbols there where she's carrying an ice tray. So that's obscuring her hand. And then as she turns and she looks, she sees the little kid jump or not even the, the little kid jumping out happens after, but she sees Leland walking off. She's starting to connect the dot. She's starting to have a little power over him because she realizes that his daughter is probably the one in the other room. And so it's like, huh, now I know something. Because what does he say when he's crushing her, her ring finger under him in the bed? Who am I? I don't know. That's right. Like he's got power over her. And as soon as that moment happens where she starts to get the upper hand, boom, what pops up into frame, but her hand with the ring on it, you know, now did Lynch choreograph all that exactly right? I don't know. Maybe it's just the universe rhyming with itself, but I love that aspect of it where it's like the ring is used as the symbol of empowerment in these like almost subliminal ways throughout the movie. That's a lot of great stuff to sink in. Um, I didn't even think of the association of the ice pack. But I would say that um, in the case of Sarah, though, because I feel like the only scene we really need to address at this point is the dinner table scene the day after, like, Laura finds out who Leland slash Bob truly is. Was there anything that you had in mind about how the dynamic was? How, uh, to me, it was, like, about as transparent as a window that something is horribly wrong with Laura and Leland. At least from my takeaway is that Sarah knows, but there's a way that she like smokes her cigarette where it's just like trying to let it sink in. Did you have any thoughts on what could have been going through her mind or why there was like a distinct passivity from her? I not really, because I feel like it relates so strongly to what we were, what we were saying before, both about like the color red and the cigarettes, but also about her role in between those two forces and stuff so i feel like actually that's sort of the culmination of the observations that we've been making i think it, it's sort of the logical endpoint for that character in firewalk with me i think this ends up being a pretty good transition to the original series because she does mention in the pilot how the last time she ever talks with laura was uh when she came in like at 9 30 and then she said good night and the thing is that i don't think it's necessarily a stark contrast but there's something about Sarah where she just instinctively knows that something is wrong. She calls the high school, the coach is like, he doesn't really have an answer. Then the Briggs family, they answer and there's a, they have a little bit of a passivity on their end. But then Leland, when she calls them, there's definitely a distinct contrast between her concern versus his lack of concern. Did you have any takeaway surface level or otherwise of what that would ensue and what that would pertain to Sarah? Um, yeah, I have a few thoughts about that and about Sarah in the in the pilot in general. I think there's a great well, first of all, that that instinctive feeling that I think they then cultivate as like a psychic quality as the show goes along. There's that great moment where she's sitting on the couch and she says, Who's upstairs? And they say, Your husband. And it's supposed to be this comforting thought, but of course it's not. That's like she's right on to it there. It is her husband who's the problem here. And then you see him sitting on the bed, holding the pillow. It's like the, when I was doing the uh, Journey Through Twin Peaks video on the killer's reveal, I returned to those moments because it's like the show, even before Lynch and Frost, because they've said, Frost has said, we didn't know in the pilot. We wrote the pilot and figured out afterwards who the killer was. But all the seeds are there. It's like 
you're getting this sense that like the scene of the crime was actually the house, even though she was murdered out in the woods. So for Sarah, it's interesting to talk about, you know, we're an hour into the conversation now and, but we're just getting to what was in, not in, you know, internally, but in like externally, how it was presented to the world. This is the first Sarah that we ever, that they created that we saw is the Sarah in the house calling to her daughter. And so right from the very beginning of this character, this origin point, she is our conduit to Laura's personal, I don't want to say personal life in a way, because I feel like the Donna and James investigation is, is in some ways that just like Audrey looks into her social connections and Cooper is looking at like her criminal and supernatural stuff. But she, it's, it's almost like Sarah is our first conduit to Laura as an individual, like as a human being, because before that we see her as this almost iconographic object, you know, they open her up and open up the, the plastic and she's there in this state. And then who is oh, Laura Palmer? And it's almost like this weird, like goddess that they found on the beach or something. But then the second we cut to the house and it's just a mother calling to her teenage daughter, who we now know is dead, that like humanizes her right away. That's the first ever grounding we get in this idea that like Lara isn't just going to be this sort of dead girl symbol that this mystery, this investigative mystery can be built around in this kind of whole mythology. She's also, it's also this very personal human tragic story. And of course, Sarah's grief is like a cornerstone of that episode, particularly before Cooper shows up. And it's interesting too, I think that I don't want to put too much stock in this because Josie's the first character we see. And I don't really think Josie is like the core person in Twin Peaks or something, but there is something to be said for overall how we meet Sarah and Leland and see this family tragedy before Cooper comes in to kind of lift the mood and get the narrative spinning. Like we wait a half hour into that pilot for like almost a full regular TV episode length. Twin Peaks is about this sad small town that's been broken by this this tragic death. And that's always kind of, and that fe- I think that's why, at least for some of us, for me, Firewalk for me felt like a return to fundamentals when we get to it finally. There's uh, definitely a lot to sink in. I'll mention the thing about Josie. I think behind the scenes and in universe, I think that in terms of behind the scenes, I think the reason why she was chosen to be the first shot was because I think just because Isabella Rosalini was attached and of course her relationship with David Yeah, Lynch. 100% agree. But I think the other one is that it does set the precedent for the significance of mirrors and what it could mean to the viewer and of course what it means to Isn't Lynch. Isn't that great? I do get what you mean where Josie seems like a surprising choice, but the thing I did want to mention in terms of Sarah is that when she screams for Laura, it's astounding how much that scene just permeates all three seasons yeah. in the movie. Because it's, I mean, it's already an iconic scene of itself, but I guess we're going to go with chronological order when Laura has her dream. And by the way, I didn't notice this until Ben from Twin Peaks Unwrapped told me, and I watched it afterwards. But near the end of the dream, it's around either when she wakes up after the Annie situation or she's at the door. But you hear Laura like in the slowest like drone where you have to distinctly perk up your ear and then of course we have the scene in the pilot and then it's even cooper's dream and the thing is that it's either that one or the one in the early early on season two but there's one where it shows her in the slow motion running down the stairs and then there's that flicker of electricity or the sound of it so there's something about that scene that again it doesn't necessarily mean it was judy but 
it does make me think that there was something to Sarah Palmer and how how deceptively central she was. That's literally the last dialogue of season three, because what year is this happens before we hear the Sarah calling Laura and then Laura screams, which is this, is like a guttural sound, like the, the actual last words we hear are Sarah calling to Laura, which is fascinating to think about. That's where the series ends. That really does show that Sarah, how just deceptively important she is, despite the fact that yes. I think Grace Zabriskie only has 42 to 44 minutes of screen time throughout everything. And I'm including the missing pieces and all yeah. three seasons Fire Walk with me. I don't know when Grace Zabriskie had this in mind, but I remember she's uh, pushed for the idea at one point that her and uh, Maddie's mother, Beth, that they would be, she said, basically witches. So I don't think there's anything yeah. about a traditional witch, but... There was something to that, and it was around in Laura's Ghost where she said that, uh, I guess there's a couple things, where she said that Sarah can foresee a little bit, also that she believed in post-lives. I think that Grace Zabriskie had a fantastical outlook pretty early on, if it even was in the first season, at least season two, that she had a certain, uh, just a certain mindset that she had uh, in terms of like where Sarah fit in with uh, the Palmer family and Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean... First of all, Grace Zabriskie is just a fascinating person herself. There's like a great interview with her in Laura's Ghost by Courtney Stallings and other interviews over the years. Like she's just a fascinating person. She definitely has a very tough as nails demeanor where, you know, it's like we were mentioning Laura's Ghost where that's if there's one interview that reaffirmed that for me, it was that just because of like everything she's gone through in life, the way that her artistic mediums and like woodwork and her methodology get in some cases. There's definitely a distinct tenacity that Grace Zabriskie brings when she plays Sarah. I think it's one of the factors of like you were saying before, she's only in for like 45 minutes at most, but it just feels like she just permeates so much across all three seasons of the movie. Well, I feel like like she just anchors a few points that hold everything else down when you look at it. Like like you said, she deceptively, you know, slim screen time. It's like there's the pilot stuff where she sets the foundation of the grief and worrying over Laura and the loss of her and some the idea that there's something off in this home as well, I think, from the beginning. She anchors particularly like the latter part of season three, which we'll get into, I'm sure, with her weird incidents out in the town and then finally like smashing Laura's portrait. And she anchors certain parts of the Firewalk Me Missing Pieces overall, the larger Firewalk Me project. I think particularly missing pieces, like more so than Firewalk With Me, you know, like there's just scenes scattered throughout. So it's like from those three points. She kind of anchors everything, but like for much of the show, she kind of slips away. Like she's pretty important in the early episodes of season one, where she is the conduit that brings Bob into the narrative. And then after that, she kind of disappears. We don't see her, I think, at all in the second half of season two. Okay, no, actually both. We don't see her in the second half of season one after they sketch Bob based on her description, which is like almost exactly halfway through the season. Never see her again. We hear her one time calling for Leland when Maddie is sneaking around downstairs. That's it. She's gone. Then she comes back in season two premiere. And for, I think that episode, maybe the next one, she's kind of presence. I actually don't even know if she's in the next episode. It might just be the, the premiere. And then the killer's reveal, I should say, okay, that's another point that anchors her in the narrative. I think that episode where she's crawling down the stairs is, is very pivotal, but like it's these weird focal points. And then, she very conspicuously disappears in season two. 
and comes back only for the finale. Surprisingly, I have a deceptively large amount about her absence after Leland's Wake. Before we get to that, I did want to mention that the dynamic uh, between Sarah and Leland, and to be fair, I'm saying this as someone who doesn't have kids and nor has uh, lost a child, but you just think of how they're just seemingly at odds with each other. And of course, it's around this time, or at least the day before, where she uh, sees Bob. And the thing that's interesting is that, and this seems like it would be a Lynchian thing, but the fact that Dwayne Dumb directed the episode, I think it just showcases that he has like a certain, uh, he, he aligns in a certain way, is that after Sarah, she hugs Donna and she sees Bob. And from the angle, it looks perfect from where it would be, like she like he would be in that room. But the thing is that it's like perfect, like in her eyesight, where it's like, it's actually Laura's bed. And the thing is that when I realized that it wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I know it sounds silly, but the first time I watched it, the angle is so perfect that it didn't even cross my mind. So it yeah. really does highlight that there is something about how she has a certain foresight. I think, unfortunately, because when we talk, whenever I discuss Bob, I always ask if someone thinks that person, if they're gifted or the damned. I think, unfortunately, everything we talk about, like pertain to Judy and Sarah and also the jumping man. I think if there's one character who's damned, it's unfortunately Sarah. Yeah, I mean, well, she's definitely gifted as well, but I think often the gift is the damning in Twin Peaks. You know, it's a, it's a gift in terms of being setting you apart and making you special, but not in terms of giving you something you necessarily want. It's funny that scene, that for me personally is the scene where Twin Peaks was born because I couldn't, when I first rented it in 2006, it was just before the gold box. And I actually stopped it and waited for the pilot to come out when I realized, but they did not have the pilot available on Netflix. So you would rent Twin Peaks and it was just like the six discs of the eight episodes, the seven episodes after the pilot in season one. And that was like kind of it. So I watched that episode first and I didn't know that it wasn't the pilot. I was like, something's off here. Like all these, first of all, like David Lynch clearly isn't directing. All of these characters seem to like, like there's already a story in motion. Like what's going on? This can't be. And so, you know, I quickly figured out it wasn't the pilot, but I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I don't know if the show's for me. It seems a little soap operatic and whatever. It's, you know, maybe looks a little dated from the early nineties. You know, I was more a movie person than a TV person anyways. I was curious to see this because of the David Lynch connection. I was like, eh. I don't know this we'll see and then it got to that scene and of course reminded me right away of the the winky scene in Mulholland Drive where Sarah screams at Bob and I was like oh I literally jumped up and yelled and I think my roommate came into the room like what's what's up what's going on here like it just it scared it like just shocked me because it's so out of place you have no you think you're in this safe place in this living room on a couch you know everything that's in the room it's been established and then suddenly there's a guy staring at you from this totally incomprehensible angle. Like it just, so yeah. So, for, so, so that's interesting. Like for me personally, my viewing experience of Twin Peaks, that was the first like magical moment of Twin Peaks for me. This is uh, more so for a subsequent rewatch. But the thing is that after that scene, Donna is just completely just confounded and just doesn't know what to do. But then it's Leland that comes to comfort her. Yeah. So the thing is that, she seems like she's getting away from it, but she's really not, which I think is like what we were saying about in Firewalk Me, that's like this inescapable thing that Leland has a certain degree of control. And again, I know there's a lot of uh, discourse, whether Leland Bob or if there's no Bob, but there is still something to that in terms of how like he's the one that goes to comfort her. There's an interesting reversal that takes place in early season one, which is pilot like Sarah is the one who is like hysterically grieving. Episode one, she's the one who's hysterically grieving. 
And then episode two, and up to that point, Leland is more of like the rock. He's comforting her. He cries, you know, he's a little quieter in his grief. He's trying to be sturdy and support her. And then comes episode two. And that's where suddenly it shifts. He's the one starting to go crazy, dancing, spinning in a circle with her picture. And Sarah races into the room and has that infamous line, what is going on in this house? And then I think the funeral follows up on this. He jumps on the coffin and she says, don't ruin this too. And he's going up and down. And and at that point, they sort of, it's almost like a relay. Like she hands the baton off to him of like, now you're going to be the crazy grieving parent. And he is for basically the rest of the show. She comes in and out. But really, like, it's like something in the writing at that point shifted to like, actually, let's have the father do this. And I think part of it is this idea of Twin Peaks wanting to subvert and be surreal with these different tropes. And I think maybe the idea of like a father who's hysterically grieving, it just is like sort of more culturally unexpected in a way than like the mother doing this. So like they ran with it. And I also think that that may, I suspect maybe that preceded the decision that Leland was the killer, but I don't know because it it sort of depends. Like I like to think that it was decided when Leland, when Ray Wise accidentally broke the glass, the, uh, the portrait of Laura when he was dancing. And like, that was like real blood. I think it was like, there's different stories, like whether it was his blood or Grace Zabriskie's blood. And he just impulsively like started smearing it on the photo. I love the idea that that was when they said, oh, we've got something here. This is going to be the killer. But the thing is, Lynch shot that episode out of order. So that would mean they didn't figure it out till the end of season one, because he shot that right before the finale. And I'm not sure it took that long for Lynch and Frost to know. It could have, because these things get jumbled in memory. And like Frost might've remembered, oh, it was that second episode the way it was shot and forgotten that it was shot that late. So who knows that that's like one of my pet theories is that maybe that was the moment that Ray Wise inadvertently made himself the killer, which he did not want to be in Twin Peaks. Yeah. I know you said there's the debate of whose blood it was. I personally think it was both because Ray Wise has the scar on his thumb still, but then uh, Grace Zabriskie, she has the insistence that David Lynch was holding her hands as like they're trying to take care of it for 20 plus minutes. Think of like how fragile glass is, especially when it breaks accidentally. But yeah, I think you are onto something about Ray Wise where when he smeared the photo in blood, that really, that told something to Lynch and Frost that we kind of idea who the killer is. Yeah, and it's like, they they talk about it like it was always there, but we had to like uncover it ourselves, you know? And there is that sense, like in the pilot, There's these little clues there, but he's a little bit more of like a normal character in the pilot. It's really not till that episode where he starts to become kind of the bizarre Leland that we all like know, love, fear, and hate (laughs) throughout Twin Peaks. One other thing I want to say, because when you just, we were just talking about that, like the idea that the actors kind of brought this about, it's fascinating to me that Bob was born in Sarah's gaze, both the sense that Lynch got the idea when they were shooting the point of view shot of Sarah looking around the bedroom. And then according to him, there was another coincidence where Bob was spotted in the mirror when we're looking at Sarah as she's looking out. So like the, it's almost like a shot reverse shot thing of looking through Sarah's eyes and looking at Sarah's eyes are the two moments where Bob was born. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I know in the both the pilot and international pilot, he was, uh, I think the, in, the, in the regular pilot, that was definitely an accident. But the things that I, I swear, and to be fair, I've only watched the international pilot once, but I could have sworn that 
it showed the mirror that it clearly lingered on Frank Silva. Like in, yeah. in the pilot, it's a blinking mess, but in the international pilot, maybe it wasn't deliberate, but it was in there a little bit longer. Yeah, I wonder if that was either, you know, another take they did where they were like, stay in the mirrors, like stay there, focus on it. Or also if it could just be a longer extended take because in the pilot, she pops up and we cut to the necklace in the woods and then she screams and we cut to the credits. But in the international pilot, she sits up, she screams, and then and she we cut not to the necklace, but to Bob hiding behind the bed. And then she has like lines. She's like, Leland, Leland, I saw him. And she's calling out, which is interesting in and of itself that she's calling to Leland that she saw Bob. But during that, that's when we kind of linger on Bob and the Mara. So it might just be that they kept more of that take that where they shot something that was going to be both for the pilot and the international pilot. I don't know. Probably the last major scene, which is strange enough, around the halfway point of season one. I know we brought up the don't ruin this too moment, but I'm surprised by how many people, at least people who bring it up, say that they kind of like guess that Leland was the killer during that. Because when I think of the don't ruin this too, I thought she was referring to the previous episode where he basically like smeared, not basically, he did yeah, uh, smear yeah. it with blood. But I think that uh, one thing that retroactively fits in, to be fair, I'm not the one who came up with this. I I forget who said it, but there is something very unsettling about what Leland slash Bob's relationship was with Laura. And right when like she's about to be let down, he jumps on the casket, and that's where it starts shaking up and down a little bit. Yeah, when I thought of that, I was like, that you like it just it just makes you feel gross about how that relationship was, and also it may or may not have something to do with like how much Leland really knew as well. There's a. Uh... Donahue show 1990 when when it was like a right before the season one finale and Mark Frost comes on with a bunch of actors and announces that they're coming back for season two and all this stuff and there do there's a lot of speculation about who killed Laura Palmer and that they do a poll of the audience and all this is a great time capsule of like the weird moment where like Twin Peaks was actually a pop culture phenomenon that your mom, dad, neighbor, and like mailman would all be tuning into, which is kind of funny. But the reason I bring it up though, is because a woman stands up and she's like, um, when the father jumped on the casket and was like riding it up and down, was that like a suggestion that he abused her and was and killed her? And it's like, holy shit, like you pretty much just called it right there at that moment. And like Mark Frost sort of like makes a joke because he can't say, you know, yes or no. It kind of responds with like a sort of a some sort of joke and they move on but it's like <laughs> it's it's kind of uncanny in that sense that people were seeing this at the time even though when you look at that poll it was like 25 percent dr jacoby and like one percent leland palmer the father i think actually he might not have even been on the list of suspects he was like below dale cooper and laura killed herself so it, it was there always in the back of people's minds i think but it wasn't spoken aloud that often I've actually been recommended the Phil Donahue interview. Uh, that's the one where it had the uh, cast of like at least six or seven people. Yeah. I could never sit through the first five minutes because it, honest to God, it feels like one of those weird live action skits on Adult Swim at 4 a.m. <laughs> it just has that vibe. Like everyone looks uncomfortable. Everything just looks <laughs> yeah. so comedically dated. Because the thing is that Twin Peaks, it has that very dated yet timeless quality. But you look at uh, Phil Donahue, it's like the most latter-day, 60-plus-year-old, like, early 90s look. And everything about it is just so off-putting. It it legitimately (laughs) feels like if Lynch directed an Adult Swim skit, this would be it. Like an episode of On the Air. Yeah, it it really does. Honestly, it feels more tense than uh, even the pilot episode of On the Air. And that's actually an episode I love. (laughs) 
Also, Eric DeRay's hair. But I, I think that at least for season one says everything about Sarah. Because like we said, she ends up becoming a background character for a bit. But the next time we see her, at least that I can actually think of, it's when Leland, when he uh, emerges with the white hair and uh, mm-hmm. Sarah and Maddie are just frozen in just disbelief. Yeah. And that's interesting. That's a moment where Maddie is the one who has the dark vision in the living room. So again, I almost feel like that's like a weird, almost passing of the baton where it's like Sarah's already sort of passed the role of grieving parents, primary grieving parent onto Leland. And now she's kind of passing the role of dark spiritual visions to Maddie, even though it's it's like her comeback as a character, like we haven't seen her for so long. And now Lynch is back. So he brings Sarah along. She's more like reacting throughout the episode and other people kind of get the qualities that she once had as a character. This that might be a little more of a Leland thing, but you think of where he emerges, it's like that thing that's behind the couch. It's just like, I forget what they're called, but it's in a spot. It's not like he comes downstairs with it. He just emerges behind it. Like he was just staying by in there the whole time. Right. Yeah, it's very weird. I didn't think about it until John Bernardi and Blue Rose Task Force talked about it. I was like, yeah, I guess that doesn't make sense. Like, where would he really emerge? Like, would they realistically see him? And I mean, of course, there's the whole aspect of, Lynch just wants to surprise you, but at the same time, I do think that it does... It's a great scene. Yeah, it does. It, it might. It may or may not lend us a fantastical aspect, but it does add to that uh, certain surprise that uh, I think that Lynch could do, not to undermine the other directors, but it's something that like he can distinctly do and pull off extremely well. Yeah, that is funny, because I always just think in my head, okay, there's a door there, but really, like, there isn't. Like, it's not, it's like the corner of the room, which again, I mean, I guess in a sense of like seeing Bob in weird spatial positions in that room, I guess it maybe is like a, a little subliminal connection to that as well. Honestly, I think really the only major scene with Sarah after that, it would be probably when Leland is revealed to be Bob. I think the only thing I could really get out of it, and while it is, there's a definitely a visceral terror, I, feel, I do think of how, what it means for Sarah, because you see how... I say this under the assumption that she drank the milk before she descended unconsciousness. But the thing is that you think of how, relatively speaking, how far it is to crawl from the the Palmer bedroom down the stairs and just how arduous it was to get to that point. And then when she sees the white horse. Yeah, that's the dead center of the show, basically, is that episode like a 15. And of course, they didn't know this, you know, they didn't time it out this way, but it's like literally 15 episodes in with 15 episodes to go. So there's like something to that, like right at that center point of the show is like Sarah crawling down the stairs. And there was something else about that too. That Oh, right. The mirrors. When we're talking about mirrors, this is not a Sarah point, but it's interesting. Is like it opens with Josie looking at herself in the mirror. It ends with Cooper looking at Bob in the mirror. And at that halfway point, we have Leland looking at Bob in the mirror. So that is like another interesting um, kind of symmetry there. The thing is that I'm surprised that Sarah, I mean, I guess you could argue that this time she was actually unconscious for a long period of time. But the, the next episode after Maddie's killed, she's not in it at all. But she does, and I don't think she's even well, in she it. Is, when... She's in one scene. She is, um, she comes down at the, and it's, I think it's just to show us that she's alive because people might think she's dead at the end of the previous episode. Where she like comes downstairs, she's like, Leland, we've got the thing tonight or something. We've oh, got you're the... right. Yes. Yeah. And that's it. And then we don't see her again, I think, until seven, episode 17. This is actually the last like favorite scene. Because my thing is that this is a scene right before the season two subplots come in. Brisa Brisky, she brings a lot to this scene and the gravity of 
the realization of who Leland was, or at least uh, the way Cooper talks about it, where he talked about it was Bob, how he was innocent the whole time. But still, it doesn't change the fact that Laura, Maddie, and Leland are dead. And the thing is that she doesn't want to take any, like, any drugs uh, at his wake. And the thing is that while at least Audrey and I believe, is it Donna's uh, mother? Is it Eileen that's also on the couch? But the thing is that it seems like the family, or at least the community, is pretty good about looking after her. Uh, the Hank part, that might just be more of an ulterior motive, because, you know, there's only like maybe one person he liked out of the whole show, and even that's debatable. But the thing is that after that wake, she's not in it at all. I always found that to be a bit of a concern. Did you have any stances on it? It's absolutely egregious because the last thing she says is, I don't want to forget anything or I want to remember everything. And boom, she's cut out of the show at that point. Like, it's so weird. The show is literally just telling on itself. It's so strange. I've never seen an episode that is like more uneasily, almost like subconsciously aware of what it's suppressing. And and it's true in that first scene, I think, too, because it is this weird conversation where it's like, is the strongest scene in the episode and it's the last thing that feels like a part of the Palmer investigation but it's also performing this weird job of like kind of contradicting some of the things we just saw like confirming some of the more like troublesome things I think in retrospect of like oh she's it's not Leland he's a good man it's this horrible thing that invaded and did everything and sort of blame the boogeyman. I think you can object to that both in the sense of like, well, why are you going to tell an incest story and be like, but the father didn't really do it. Like that's a weird decision to make, but it's also kind of dramatically problematic because it's like, well, wait a second. So if you're just projecting everything that was bad onto Bob, but like this whole time we've been watching Leland, he's, and he's doing all these strange things that we found endearing or charming or wacky or whatever. And that was all Bob. Well, then there is no Leland. Like you've in the process of trying to save Leland, you've, you've erased him, <laughs> which is funny. Cause I think that episode literally does erase Sarah. I mean, it's this weird transference where she's like, I'm going to stop taking drugs. I'm going to face up to this tragedy. I'm going to deal with all this trauma and the show itself. It's like, okay, you have fun doing that. We're going to go over here with the brothers now and watch them fight. It's one of the strangest episodes of television I've ever seen. And I kind of, I can't use the word like, but I am fascinated by it for that reason. You are watching a show just rationalize and deny and sort of dissolve under the weight of that before your very eyes. And I think the fact that we eventually come back with the finale with Firewalk with me makes it in a weird perverse way work that much better because it's like this weird example of the phenomenon that it's depicting (laughs) it embodies it as well as depicts it this is behind the scenes one but brad dukes he was the one who told me that he did an interview with tina rathborn who directed that episode and apparently the writer it was a first time writer for the show and the thing is that You know, you have this opening scene of, like, building off of, like, resolving the murder, but then you also have to have all these people in one room, and then, of course, there's all the stuff behind the scenes about the Cooper and Audrey romance not falling through. To be fair, uh, even if Mark Frost wrote it, I think it would have been better, but but I think that at least even with the characterization problems in mind, I think this, this would have been inherently just tough uphill battle for anyone. But I will say also is that it was Charlotte Stewart... She said that after the murder was resolved, that she really wishes that Grace Zabriskie and Catherine Coulson were in it more. And it was actually the point where she actually stopped watching because I don't think it was explicitly because they weren't in it, 
but the fact that the show just shifted its trajectory so much. Yeah, which is interesting because they actually, she's one of the few characters they gave a little bit more to do, one of the few original characters who actually kind of got to have some of her best scenes in that stretch. Charlotte Stewart, I mean. I Actually, um, that I do agree with. So it is funny, though. It's like, but she was noticing like the larger trend there. And actually, I, this is something I we were sort of talking about it before we began recording, and I've, I've been wanting to bring this up. You mentioned on another episode this idea of like, I think you and a guest were talking about the three days later jump and how it's like, whoa, you just skipped over like all of this material. It's like, I feel like if I was ever to like commission a fan film, I don't know if I'd want to make it, but I'd want to see it is like the three days in between. Like that is, I think if we had never, if, you know, if Lynch had never made Firewalk with me, then like Laura's last seven days would be sort of the great unseen sort of hidden drama of Twin Peaks. But since we do get to see that, I think what's left is that three-day period where the town finds out what happens, they deal with it. In a way, that's what the show was building up to from the pilot, because the whole pilot is about the community's reaction to this terrible news and wondering what it all means. So they reach that point, and they don't show us any of that other than the one scene with Cooper and Sarah. That's it. Like nobody at the funeral. I mean, it is, again, it is one of the most bizarre scenes I've ever seen in a TV show where you're at a funeral for like an incestuous psycho murderer, possibly possessed by a demon. And the town is like yucking it up and everyone, there, there's a great post on this blog, I think it's 35 years of David Lynch, where he just has like screenshots from the episode and he like juxtaposes them with shots from two episodes earlier where Leland is like putting on the gloves and stuff. Actually borrowed from that a little bit in my, in my journey video on that wake scene. Cause it's like, it's so striking the contrast and like the cap, he puts captions under it where it's like. Oh, gee, Dr. Jacoby, you've been enjoying Hawaii. That's great. What do you think about the fact that you failed your patient who was being like raped by her father this whole time? It's like when you juxtapose what's really happening in the drama with this absurd, like lighthearted sitcom scene, it is so strange. It's literally Twin Peaks collapsing under the weight of the different tones it was able to pull off at one point and is now just like totally unable to integrate. You were talking about how egregious it was with Sarah because, you know, I mentioned my run episode, the fact that she's basically forgotten, but also Maddie, because you think of how, yeah. how Laura, so many how that set off forgotten. so, oh, sorry, you go on. No, I was just agreeing, like, so many people are forgotten, and a, a lot of women, interestingly enough. Yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, Laura, she sets off this whole mystery, and then you think Maddie kind of springboards it into finding the killer, that this would add something. You think at least with Donna that this would be a lot to deal with. Like, I don't know, maybe Donna would, like, I don't know, console Sarah in any capacity, because Donna, after all, almost was killed by Leland, so you think that there could have been something, like a good... It didn't have to go on for the rest of the season, but there could have been something that they had. The richest drama of the whole show takes place in those three days that we never see. Like literally, every, Doc Hayward. I mean, imagine all of these people finding out about Leland and Lara and what... That's the thing that really strikes me is the show, as it was set up in the pilot, is about a community dealing with this tragedy and trying to figure out what it means. And then it literally, it sort of by a sleight of hand convinces us that the climax to the story is like the out of town detective cracking the supernatural mystery, but that's not the story that the pilot set up. So we never get a delivery on that, which is fascinating to me. I mean, we mentioned behind the scenes aspect, but if we're talking about in universe, 
I remember uh, it was actually my major Briggs episode where my co-host where I was talking about how the idea that there'd be something, uh, some wrong would be happened since no one's visiting Sarah. So when I see her uh, when she's possessed at the end of season two and then subsequently what we see in season three, it made perfect sense to me. Since, of course, we don't see her till the season two finale, which, by the way, I don't think she was in the original script that Mark Frost, Harley Painter, Bob Engels wrote. I think it was just David Lynch that thought yes, this was right. Was. So. yeah. Yeah, so, but I think that I'm glad that he made that decision because I don't know if it necessarily tied up loose ends, but it at least kind of explained that something, in my mind, bad indeed happened to Sarah. I wasn't sure if any stances on what it was or who's possessing her at that time because there's a lot that goes on of what was, I guess, the intent at the time versus how it retroactively fits in with season three. Yeah, I think that's the root of season three right there, that one scene. I think there's a few things in the finale like that. Like, I think there's a few things Lynch and Frost really honed in on. It was like the finale and I almost almost say the missing pieces more than Firewalk with me. There's like motifs and ideas they pull from that. Even like something as simple as like Lucy not realizing that Andy's on the other side, like not on the other side of the intercom and jumping up and running into him and the missing pieces. I feel like that starts that whole thread in season three of her not understanding how cell phones work, right? So like with Sarah, she comes into the diner, she speaks in this weird voice. We never get any indication of anything like that previously in the show. And I think when they watched the rewatched the finale, which we know they did because they were struck by the 25 years later line that they'd forgotten about. I think they saw this and that started the wheels turning on like a new direction for Sarah. And it's almost like between the wake episode and this episode, there's like that, like, I don't know, 15 episode stretch. She was like in a chrysalis or a cocoon or something. And this is what she emerges as. You know, like, and that's what she is for the rest of Twin Peaks into season three is like this character with this weird kind of possession, like that. Yeah, the neglect turned her into this, this sort of occupied person where there's like another presence there. I think another great prelude to that is the Between Two Worlds interview that Lynch did with the Palmer family, with the actors playing the characters on um, the entire mystery Blu-ray. And for a while, I mean, well, a while, a few months, I suppose. I thought many thought that was going to be the last taste of Twin Peaks we got. And instead, it turned out to be a teaser for season three. But Sarah's monologue in that is great. She talks about being alone, how people only want to see one thing. I almost wish I could quote the whole thing right now, because it's it's sort of like a Rosetta Stone in a way for season three. Like she talks about, she goes out, she likes to bowl, she says, you know, but nobody's really interested in what's going on. And then she says something like, there's this and she kind of makes one face and then behind it and she makes this like almost sort of crazed face which is a, a little like Lara under the ceiling fan or something and it's like this character becomes with Leland and Lara gone she is the one who carries the Palmer family burden and the legacy of that which was the whole core of Twin Peaks into the future of the show and and kind of haunts it like I think we're talking about how like the weird break in the middle of season two erases all of these, like particularly like female characters who ended up experiencing some trauma, like Maddie, Renette, well, Laura herself in a way, Sarah, like all these characters are kind of brushed aside. And then I feel like these characters or similar characters kind of haunt season three, almost on the periphery where it's Cooper's story. It's the story of this more conventional male hero and his struggle and his inability to do certain things or see certain things. And yet, there's almost like on the side of the story, outside of that scope, we've got Diane, we've got Audrey, we've got Sarah, 
and their scenes kind of carry in some ways more emotional weight than the central Cooper stuff. Like I always think of the contrast between him waking up and I am the FBI and there's like the twin peaks theme playing. It's almost a little cartoonish move aside, Janie, I'm going to drive the car. And he's like driving along and it's like, it's supposed to be the return of the original Cooper, but he's kind of lacking some of Cooper's colorfulness. He's he's like a little bit flatter of a version of Cooper, I feel like. And then we almost smash cut from there with the theme music fading out to Diane sitting at the bar. We get that whole amazing sequence with her revealing she's a tulpa and how Cooper raped her and all of this stuff. And it's like this direct juxtaposition between these two scenes to me kind of shows the central, what I think is one of the most compelling things about Twin Peaks, which is that it's almost sort of sidelining the meteor stories and telling us that Cooper can't quite see that they're there. So, and I, and Sarah is a huge part of that. I mean, she is like the presence haunting season three. The legacy of Laura is haunting it through her, and she has her own kind of tangled feeling or, or experience of that. This is applicable for both realities where Laura's killed and Laura's missing, but I think that everything you said fits really well with the 25 years between seasons two and three, because uh, the first scene we see of Sarah, it's at the end of part two before uh, we see Chromatics. She's in there watching TV, and I remember one day, it must have been a year and a half after I first watched it, but I realized that it's like basically electricity in front of a fireplace. The first time I watched it, I thought this is some weird feng shui for Sarah to have the TV just like right in front of it. But I think of the the map that Hawk has where he talks about how electricity is basically the modern fire and it's also the intent. But the thing is that, you know, everything we're talking about with Sarah and Judy, because I think that during this time in her absence, that's where Judy really started to thrive on her. And we're seeing the culmination of that. Did you have any thoughts about the introduction of Sarah Palmer in season three in The Return? Yeah, I like the idea that people have talked about of it being a parallel with the glass box where she's watching this TV probably at the exact time that Sam and Tracy are being attacked by the experiment in uh, New York. So she's looking at the glass box. They're looking at the glass box. She's watching a scene of carnage and violence. They're about to experience it. And uh, I think that further underscores whatever connection there is between experiment slash Judy slash, you know, whatever, and Sarah. And that she's like, it's one of those moments in Twin Peaks where things kind of rhyme. I was thinking of how, I guess, the contrast of Sarah Palmer and Hawk, because going back to the map for a bit, I'm thinking of the scene in part 12 when Sarah has her meltdown in the supermarket. And the thing with that is, you know, she sees the turkey jerky and it sets her off. And I kept on thinking about Hawk's map where it shows the turkey next to the blackened corn and it shows that there's like this evil dark influence. And I'm thinking about how maybe it's a Sarah's kind of awakening from it for a moment or maybe there's this weird trigger effect. Did you have any thoughts about the turkey jerky or anything that pertains to Hawk and how he factors in? Mostly because he ends up showing up to see her after this uh, meltdown. Yeah, I I think at the time people, when it aired, people were like, Gee, you know, turkey jerky and Laura says, I'm like, I'm gone like a turkey in the corn, gobble, gobble. And it was like, that's an interesting link. Maybe it's a stretch. I don't know. But when you add in the map, I think the fact that there's a turkey on the map as well, like one episode before, at that point, I have to be like, okay, I, I think the fact that it's specifically turkey jerky is definitely some sort of a Laura reference. I think the turkey motif probably has not been worked out to the extent that the corn has. Like, I almost think like maybe it's just something that 
intrigues Lynch that he hasn't quite like, you know, if we ever get season four, maybe there'll be extended a uh, Turkey riff somewhere in there. But I mean, certainly, yeah, it's, I think, I feel like John Thorne wrote about like some, the, the song like Turkey in the, is it Turkey in the straw or something? I don't know. Like there's a connection between the expression, like a Turkey in the corn and kind of what that is supposed to mean. But I, I can't remember what it, I can't remember what it is. I would just obviously associate Turkey with something that's like slaughtered for Thanksgiving um, sort of has a complicated depending you know which angle you're looking at it from if Laura is the turkey obviously that's a sort of an ominous thing but that's just a sort of the most straightforward on the surface kind of connection that I would think of yeah whatever it is there's obviously a turkey motif that is that's what sparks something in Sarah and I think also to return to the what I was saying with the missing pieces like this is another scene where it feels like yes there's some mythological component it's also just a really resonant portrait of like an older woman having some sort of psychotic break for a moment. It feels very real, like a woman in the supermarket saying, talking to herself, saying strange things, moving off. And the kids like, well, what just happened? Like, it just feels like one of those aspects of like a small town portrait that season three offers that aside from its larger thematic significance just resonates. And I feel like Sarah gets to kind of, I think that ties into this idea of her, and the others, Audrey is another character where it's it's obviously like a portrait of certain kinds of like mental illness, whatever else it is as well. Like these peripheral characters get to kind of embody that while Cooper kind of tries to evade and avoid it in the main narrative. Do you ever think there's something just kind of wild about how he's always so close yet so far away, everything relative to the turkey and also the fact that when Sarah that he asks if anyone's home. I guess to be fair, legally, he couldn't really press it, but do you feel like there's something missing to that dynamic, or do you think he did everything he feasibly could within reason? Grace Zabriskie, I think, has a great line about that in the interview with Courtney Stallings, where she says something like, you get the sense, maybe I'm misquoting, but I feel like she said something like, you get the sense that Sarah wants him to come in, but she can't let him in. Like, he somehow... I wish I had it right in front of me, but it's basically like the implication is that he he should go in, but he can't. Like, it, it's not like, oh, he's not doing it. It's like the, the door isn't, I mean, the door is literally open, but it isn't open in some sense. And she wishes it could be, but that's not the, again, I think it goes back to that idea of Sarah kind of stuck in the groove from a young age and it gets deeper and deeper. At this point, it's like, no, this is not the life you're leading. The life you're leading is not Hawk comes in and talks to you and maybe sees something or figures something out and helps you. Like, that's just not your life. That's not who you are. That's not the life you're leading. You're on a track and you're just going to stay on that track and keep going deeper and deeper. I think you're right about that because um, everything I said about Hawk, it's not anything about incompetence on his part. It's really more so... It seems like there's almost a memory loss, not unlike what Cole and uh, Albert go through about Philip Jeffries, because I think that's the thing is because I, I look at the perspective of in the final dossier where or actually we'll, we'll talk about the return first is that Margaret, she reaches out to Hawk. And to me, I think of Margaret as being like a, an objective truth in Twin Peaks and that Hawk would be the next in line. And it's reaffirmed the final dossier where after she dies that he has her log. So he's definitely tapping into something, but there is something about that evil, I think, that permeates the Palmer home that keeps him from going in to help her in any capacity. 
Yeah, we haven't really talked about, I mean, this would be a whole other conversation, but the house as a kind of symbol in and of itself and like a repository of all this energy. And and, uh, and I think in season three, really throughout the show, Sarah is identified with the house. Like, does she ever leave? Yeah, the grocery store. That's the one time I think we... We do the grocery to, store, uh, the funeral. The Elks Point, the bar. Um... Yeah, that's true, actually. I was going to say in season three, we see her even more entrapped or exclusively in the house. But actually, I think we might see her outside of the house more in season three than we do in season, certainly season two. Well, she goes to the diner. Yeah, I guess she does go out every now and then. It's just you tend to think of her as somebody almost like trapped in the house. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like even when she goes outside, she's like on a leash that's going to pull her back to the house. I know this could be a whole conversation of itself, but I think there's a larger theme of confinement to the characters in The Return. But I do think in the case of Sarah, there's something about that that's definitely in The the Return, but also in the original series. Because like we were mentioning is that she seems to go only, only go out on occasion. You look at the house and it looks clearly lived in. Like everything about like, the drapes are neglected. The carpet is just diminished away. Like the, like it looks like her table has been cleaned in who knows how long. And I know messes like that can kind of accumulate, but I think it really does showcase just like the, the mindset that she's in, what she's trapped with. Yeah, I and I agree with what she says in that in the Lars Ghost interview and what others have. You know, John Thorne. I think I see the Sarah, whatever's going on with Sarah, differently from from what John Thorne does, but I think in some ways I'm closer to him than to other people, including Mark Frost, I think kind of says, yeah, she, I think she had this thing in her all. I mean, you know, we do literally see in part eight, if you believe that Sarah, that the frog bug entered very early on, but whether it's like takes a long time to be activated, or again, if we're looking at it more from this emotional psychological perspective, that it's like the groove gets deeper or whatever. I just think there's something to the idea that whatever is going on with Sarah in season three, it really began after Lara's death. They're not even Lara's death, like Leland's death. After everything collapsed and she was left alone, the infestation really started to take root and has been going now for 25 years. And that's what leads to the version of Sarah we see there. I would say I completely agree. And this come back to cycling back to the frog moth. In the case of the frog moth, where it picked like this young, vulnerable girl out of the other two people we saw. But I think there's something about it lying dormant. Like, I kind of think of how time for these omnipresent forces where time is relative to them, where it's like 30, 40 years is like completely different for them than for us. So I think that it just kind of festered there for a bit. And then it was set off by Laura. And then, like we were saying before, the subsequent deaths of Maddie and definitely Leland, and uh, also the negligence of uh, really springboard that for her. Yeah, and and it's also I guess this would be the point because I presumably we're probably leading toward the end here. But for me, the whole notion of like the Judy Sarah thing, I have trouble seeing to a certain extent separately, but also in terms of how they relate. The idea that like Judy is like the big bad, the big evil in the universe. She's like the new Bob, which first of all, I have a problem with because like, well, what was wrong with the old Bob is a symbol of, of that. Like, why do we need to like, it just seems sort of redundant, right? Like, I'm more interested in in what John Thorne has talked about of the idea of Judy as like an embodiment of trauma or maybe denial or something that's like a negative quality, but like also has its place um, more so the uh, trauma or or more so like, 
I guess, grief or something than denial. That would be more purely negative. But like this idea of Judy as like a sort of a force that has its place in the universe. You know, you have to have the positive, you have to have the negative and actually plays perversely a positive role in some ways in season three. I mean, certainly like they do not build up the guy whose throat she tears out to be very sympathetic in the bar. So it's sort of hard to like view that as this, this horrible monster attack or whatever. The thing with the portrait to me is the most interesting in part 17, where we're getting this whole vision of Cooper, like supposedly rescuing Lara in a way that doesn't make much sense. Like he says, I'm bringing you home. Does he mean that he's bringing her to the white lodge or the, the giant, the fireman's palace or something, or does he mean he's bringing her back to the Palmer house? Like the word choice is very interesting because home is where she's trying to escape. So there's something off about that whole thing. And then Sarah comes out and it feels like in some way she is attacking the portrait. She's like, it's, it's complicated because on the one hand, it feels like she's sort of setting the order correct again, refuting Cooper's vision of like Laura and what needs to be done, right? Because in several ways, I think for one thing, that portrait of Laura is something that Laura herself is really upset with in the secret diary. It's like, that's not me. That's like a facade for the whole town to see. And it's sort of used that way throughout the series where it's under the end credits, but it's never like quite a truthful portrait of her. And it's it's interesting that Firewalk Me ends with what does feel like a truthful portrait, which is like her freeze frame in the lodge crying as she sees the angel, right? And it's like a pointed contrast. So Sarah going after this picture in a way feels like a sort of a justice being restored of like, this isn't the real Laura, like screw this. Now at the same time, the picture doesn't break, which is interesting. Leland does break it and Sarah doesn't. I don't know if that was just how they shot the scene like they they didn't have her hitting it with something that would break it or if there's supposed to be something to unpack and you know there's all kinds of different readings you can have of that but i just tend to, like when i'm just swimming with the emotions of that scene and and seeing where it goes to me it feels like a darkness sweeping in that needs to sweep in at that moment to remind us like hey no 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 like cooper leading lara through the woods is fundamentally wrong. It misunderstands what the story is. Sarah gets it. That plus the fact that I just like, you know, Sarah is like the evil twin of Leland makes no sense to me. Like I've already kind of laid out her complexity. Like she has a lot of darkness. She has a lot of responsibility, but like, it's just an odd thing for me to like the notion of like two powerful parents that are like terrorizing Lara to me, just, it doesn't quite work with what we see. It doesn't quite work dramatically in this type of story. Like I think the other, the vision of Sarah almost as the one caught between these two powerful forces of Lara and Leland makes more sense to me than her being some sort of co-equal evil spirit to Bob Leland. It, It just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't feel right. Like something feels off about it. So I'm more compelled by the idea of Judy as like an outgrowth or a manifestation of the trauma that Sarah is almost like the gatekeeper or the guardian of. And her rushing in to attack that picture is a restoration of like, hey, 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 you don't get away from it that easy. I got to put out there, that's a lot of great insight. I never would have thought of Cooper overstepping boundaries to the degree that Judy would be effectively doing a good thing. That's a scene that it just confounds so many people. I was even telling you before recording how it just like, I couldn't even stop thinking about it for days and just like, and how much it tortured me on a, on a second rewatch. 
But I guess to start off with the dynamic of Bob and Judy, I think of almost like in the Black Lodge, um, and I, I'm going to go back to Fire Walk Me on a couple of these points, is that I think of with Bob and Judy, is that I think of the Black Lodge, there's almost a hierarchy where I'm thinking in Fire Walk Me where Bob steals the corn. He has to give it up. Like he's almost like, it's almost like he forced to do it. But I also think of the scene in The Missing Pieces in the convenience store when he talks about how he has uh, the fury of his own momentum. And I think that for him, it's almost trying to get away from Mike and the arm who are out to stop him. And the thing is that I think with Judy, I think he can find that flourishing chaos that he ensues. To shift over again with Fire Walk with me, before Laura leaves Bobby's basement, he asks where you're going. And she says, I'm going home in a very distinct and deliberate manner. And I think of how much that parallels with Cooper. And my thing is that I think with Cooper is that he doesn't understand any of the motives. I think that he just kind of has his own objective. And even after being in the Black Lodge for at least 25 years, he doesn't understand what Laura has to do. I think in the part one, I believe it's when the fireman talks about two birds, one stone. And I've thought for a while is that Basically, the two birds, one stone, it was to save Laura and take her to the White Lodge directly. I think that there's something to that and also how the find Laura scene for Cooper that I kind of prompt him to do that as well. Come back to Sarah. When it, well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that when she feels Cooper, again, I'm saying this under the pretense that he's taking her to the White Lodge, that Judy can feel something is happening, that it's like this agonizing feeling as things are changing. The first thing she can do is just instinctively go after the portrait. You mentioned earlier is that about how the portraits are. I think it's just the glass that breaks on both of them. I have this whole theory that there's this subtle physical power that Laura has where you can see it with her clothes, how there's a change in Donna and Maddie. But I think the picture is emblematic of that as well, where... I think Judy slash Sarah, she's trying to destroy the photo as a last ditch effort. And this is my assumption is that she's the one that ends up abducting Laura to take her to the Odessa world. I I'm sorry, I know that was a lot to throw out there, but I just want to make sure I got it in as much of a concise manner as possible. I have a couple of thoughts sort of spinning off from that. One is that if Judy, so you talk about like the sort of the hierarchy notion of like Judy in a way is more powerful than Bob or more like sort of, I mean, certainly if, if Judy is the experiment, we see the experiment birthing Bob. So there's that sort of precedence. And that's kind of another reason where I feel like if you kind of try to retcon Sarah as Judy into the earlier parts of Twin Peaks, it doesn't quite work because if Sarah is a more powerful figure in some ways than Leland, that only really would happen after Leland's death. She'd need those 25 years to percolate and kind of, I mean, in a sense, partly just from outliving everyone and having all that time to kind of wallow in the, the muck of it all, that would make her into somebody who has more, you know, who, who could host something with more power than the Leland Bob thing. But to go back and look at the scenes in Firewalk with me and Missing Pieces and be like, that's Judy sitting there, doesn't, doesn't ring true in that way. You know, it's it's almost like, Leland Bob had to go away for a Judy Sarah to emerge. And so then, okay, so then there was another thought in there too that I had, but I don't remember it. So we'll just move on. <laughs> the only scene we really have, and actually I know you said uh, this could be a whole episode, but we could probably talk about the Palmer home as a character and what it means for Sarah, because 
I guess it depends on how you feel about Part 18, specifically with Alice Tremont, and then the subsequent Laura yell from, uh, from Sarah. Did you have any thoughts on what this would mean for Sarah? Either what it means for Alice Tremont being there, and then also her uh, yelling Laura at the very end? Yeah, the, the Alice Tremont thing is fascinating because it's like, in a very subtle way, the return and maybe all of Twin Peaks has been building Sarah up into this moment where it's like, She's who they're expecting to find at the door, but also she's who would sort of make dramatic sense to find there. Like we've gotten to the point where it's almost like the three key figures left in Twin Peaks. The story are Cooper, Laura, and Sarah. And I have some, also some thoughts on Carrie Page and whether it's fair to call her Laura or see her as purely a subsidiary of Laura, but that's sort of another story. But, you know, so you have these three figures there. And then boom, who opens the door, but like the actual owner of the house. And I guess the only thing I can say about that feeding off of our previous discussion is in a way it makes sense because as I've noted throughout Twin Peaks, Sarah is sort of getting sidelined and having her features or her qualities handed over to other characters, you know, first Leland, then Maddie, then she's sort of thrust out of the narrative altogether. And then throughout season three, she is on the periphery while Cooper is in the in the main, even though it seems like in some ways her story might be the most important, but we're not focusing on it. So it's like there's all these constant kind of deflections and handoffs. And so this is one last example of that, where it's like, finally, the conclusion of the story, we're going to see Sarah open the door and all of this thing that we've been in, it's like, nope, here's this other person. <laughs> Instead, she's going to take on the Sarah role for a moment uh, before we eventually do get Sarah's voice as the last thing we hear in Twin Peaks. And I guess that kind of ties back into what we talked about near the beginning with the secret diary, where it's like Laura felt her mother's jealousy looking at her. There is this sense of like Sarah as a constantly kind of a character who's getting sort of like slapped down and not really getting her due, not getting to do the things it feels like she's there to do. Whereas of course, Laura is always the center. The one, you know, Laura is the one. So there, there is almost that weird jealousy dynamic that's like a very human down to earth mother daughter thing. And then kind of becomes this more cosmic thing. If we look at it in the Judy Laura sense. So again, there's a, there's a contradiction there. There's a complexity there where at times it feels like Judy is almost the rightful guardian of Laura and what she needs in a weird way, uh, or maybe not what she needs, but who she really is. And then at other times also, you can see it as a sort of a rivalry almost, which feels like a very mother-daughter thing. So I like the how you cycle back from the secret diary of the pure jealousy and how that fits in. Because um, I might take away, and this is more so just from a first time watching Part 18. I actually, I remember even telling Mary Reber when I met her this, is that when Richard slash Cooper and then Carrie, they walk up to the Palmer home. I remember thinking that if Grace Zabriskie opened that door, I would have been absolutely dumbfounded i was like i feel like that would be tying things up too neatly as for alice tremond i think of the idea and i think it was brad dukes who i mentioned again i think he brought up the idea it's like how chalfonts always tremond slash chalfonts take over homes and i think that by that point i don't know sarah was effectively discarded i, I wouldn't say died but i think she was discarded and then the chalfonts just that they are taking over the home because we were talking about how that home is so central to so much like evil and oppression that it just was like all too fitting for them to be at the end of at least what we see chronologically. Yeah, the it I guess it's an interesting question what's inside of that house. We're stopped at the door. We talked to Mary Reber. It's like 
part of me almost wishes it's like we could just like jump into the screen and sort of push past Mary Reber and just look around and be like, well, what's actually here? Because it feels like there's it's where it's it's the same thing with Sarah when she opens the door to Hawk, right? And we can't go inside and there's a noise in the kitchen. There's this like tantalizing, infuriating aspect of everything seems very mundane. It seems very calm, but we know there's more. There's something just around the corner. If you can just peek around the corner, like the Rosemary's Baby thing, where you're always like hearing voices just off screen, or there's like a cigarette smoke blowing from the next room, and what's going on? What's going on? There's like this sense of we're just almost there. I never actually thought about the parallel there, though, between part 12 and part 18 of Hawk at the door and Cooper at the door, where they're both kind of asking, neither of them asks to come in, but both of them are sort of implying it and waiting for the other person to invite them in, and they don't. And then we never see what's going on there. That's a really good point. Um, That one I didn't think of. Um, And I don't know, maybe that does mean some that there's more to Sarah being, you know, Sarah and Elstremond. For me, it definitely reaffirms that there is something in that house. Um, And the thing is that this is just kind of projecting how I feel about Twin Peaks. But when I did visit the Palmer home, it's like you said, it's like everything kind of looks pretty much the same. But when you go up and you go in from the living room and you look upstairs, you see the fan. I literally like grabbed my chest like, oh, geez, like it was like a physical reaction of like, it really is that distinct, that creepy nature. And if I had to guess, there's, you know, there there's something about like the fan where, because I think it is on in the pilot where that might be setting the precedent of how important electricity is specifically in the house and how that's a central problem for the Palmer, specifically Laura. So the final um, moment where we hear Sarah's voice, Carrie screams, and the house just like the lights kind of flash and the, the circuit is broken or whatever. Um, I guess I'll ask you a question. Where do you see Sarah as a character in relation to all of that, to that final moment of all Twin Peaks, other than, I guess, Laura whispering in Cooper's ear as he grimaces under the credits? <laughs> I think there's just something like a a full circle. I, I'd love to say that I have some like incredible theory that I've been waiting for this whole time, but I think of uh, I, I think of more so about how it sets Carrie off, but I can't 100% articulate why. Maybe there's some about it's less about Sarah, but more about the home. Uh, you know, we were saying before recording about where we view stuff chronologically. I do think, however, there's something about when the electricity goes out and it fades to credits. Because uh, the first time I watched it. I thought just how just devastating and how upsetting it was. But I think of how, you know, the electricity going out and once again, coming back to Blue Velvet being my blueprint for Lynch's filmography, you think of how the light bulb goes out after Frank Booth's death. And I think that it has, it may not has to, but to me, it indicates that there's some positive and that even though that Carrie Page had to deal with this horrible or- ordeal in Odessa, that this is the moment where she does get her angel afterwards. Um, I'm sorry. It's like, I wish I could have something more explicitly about Sarah Palmer saying Laura, but it's like literally the one factor I don't feel 100% dead set on in terms of a theory. Yeah, no, me either. <laughs> but I guess... It's interesting, too, to think, you know, I'm talking about the way that the return is sort of gendered so that it's like the Cooper story and then on the periphery, these what feel like sometimes deeper stories of like these usually older female characters, like middle aged or elderly in like Sarah Palmer's case. And there's something to be said, I guess, for the idea of there's two times in part 18, I think, when Cooper isn't on screen. 
And one time is Diane seeing herself in the motel courtyard. And the other time is Carrie walking towards the door. We're inside the house with her before she opens the door to greet Cooper. And so it's interesting. We have those sort of little glimpses of like, here's the world without Cooper in this Cooper dominated episode for just a moment. And it's like, we're almost longing for that with the Mary Reber scene. Like, can we go behind that door for a second there? And we don't. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that means for with, with regards to Sarah Palmer, but yeah. just something. I feel like a lot of this conversation has given me like sort of like perspectives to play on that kind of are making it cohere a little more for me, like the Sarah thread in particular, seeing these kind of parallels and these ups and like the overall shape of it. Like you were talking about watching all of the return at once as like an 18 hour movie. It's like talking about Sarah, particularly, I think the part from like the pilot it's like season one, two, three, almost leaving the film and the books out of it and part eight of the New Mexico girl out of it. And just looking at her journey from like pilot to season three finale, there's like an interesting sort of symmetry there or where it feels like she kind of rises and falls in prominence. And there's like a sort of a shift in her story after part seven or episode 17 and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh no, thank you. That's uh no, you brought up a lot of great stuff yourself, but yeah, I, I guess the only thing, cause you said circle. The only thing I could think of is that maybe it just like, it makes me think of Lynch's quote of like, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. I guess that's the only thing I'm thinking of because I still, I don't know. Shame's not the right word, but I really do wish I had a more prominent factor of how Sarah figures into it at the very end screaming Laura, just because I know it's important, but I can't articulate why. I think one, one thing to take a shot at it, I think it ties back to what I was saying about Judy slash Sarah and the portrait where it's like, Sarah is sort of the guardian and gatekeeper of Laura's trauma and the Palmer tragedy as a whole. So if the ending of season three is supposed to be a reawakening of that and an understanding of how central it is, then it makes sense that she would be the one calling out to reawaken that in, in Laura slash Carrie or whatever. I guess you could say that it's, that's still more in terms of what it does for Laura, but I think that's fair enough in a way because Sarah's purpose in the narrative in many ways, she's not a character who's ever set on a trajectory to like fulfill herself or, do something for herself like her role is always related to her role as a mother to Lara beginning to end like all of her character development kind of relates to that point even in season three I guess where it's just her as the single woman living alone and struggling with all this it, there's like a sort of an emptiness and a restlessness there that seems to emerge or awaken in some ways that whenever it's like related to Laura, either it being the turkey jerky, or I suppose you could argue the encounter with the trucker is something that would be more, you'd expect more with like Laura Palmer in a way. So it's like throughout that's sort of what defines. So I guess that makes sense that in the final moment, her presence there is it's, it's fulfilling something for her by fulfilling something for Laura, if that makes sense. This will be my, I guess, my closing thought. And uh, this is sort of how Sarah and Judy coexist with each other. Because we mentioned the trucker scene is that when she opens up her face, you know, it's not like Laura in part two, where it's like, it's like this thing where it's like thing that protrudes inward. It's just like this hollow shell that's all black. 
and it has a smile that may or may not resemble Laura. So I do think there's something about that dynamic about how they couldn't be any more completely different. And there's just something about what I'm trying to get at is that that smile is indicative of what's been fermenting in her for at least 25 plus years. I think at that point, it was almost irreversible for Sarah. I guess those are my closing thoughts. Like, if I had to encapsulate in one scene, at least one scene we have yet to really mention. Yeah, the smile is interesting because I've seen so many rotating theories going, like people actually do like photographic comparisons. Like, is this Lara's teeth? And there was a long time or, you know, a year or so where it was after the show aired, where it was people were like, yeah, this is Lara's portrait smile under Sarah's face. Isn't that fascinating? That's so much. to. And then someone did a sort of side by side and like, no, those aren't her teeth. Look at the differences here. And it was like, oh, okay. So then the next theory was it's the jumping man's teeth. Like it's the actor who plays the jumping man, his teeth inside, which would make sense since we see the, uh, the nose jut out for a moment, right? Like there's like a pointy needle, almost like shooting out from the face for a moment. But then, so, so I think the jumping man actor liked somebody's tweet about that or something. And so people were running with that. And then somehow it was, I don't remember how it was like established, like, no, it's not that. So we're kind of back to square one. So it's like, nobody really knows where that smile comes from. And that might not be, maybe he just shot like, you know, the assistant editor's smile and did it. Like, I just need a smile. Maybe (laughs) the particular smile was not the most important, but it's one of those things where you kind of want to trace it back to something that unlocks the key or something, but that may, it may just be an aesthetic he was going for versus specific implication he was trying to convey i think about how so much stuff in twin peaks can just retroactively fit in and i think there's just something about that smile that people honed in on and just like you know and also just because of the parallels of how laura opens up her face in part two compared to when sarah does it i get what you're saying is that like you're probably right about the whole that the smile was like for lack of a better term secondary but there is definitely something like it's one of those things where i can definitely get why people would be so transfixed on it yeah, for sure. And I mean, you think of a smile and you think of Lars, so it makes sense that would be the go-to, but... Yeah, I think that, I think we covered pretty much every facet. Um, was there any other final thoughts you had on Sarah before before you finished up? Nothing that I can think of. I'll probably think of something after and, and be like, oh, why didn't I, why didn't I say that at the time? But uh, yeah, no, I, it's interesting. I think that uh, that wraps up the episode pretty much. Was there anything like any social media, any sites, uh, of course, podcasts uh, you want to plug? Uh, just what I mentioned at the beginning in terms of where you can find my work, I guess specifically I'm hoping to resume Lost in Twin Peaks season three coverage in November and finish that up by the end of the year. I stopped at part 11 because I just couldn't keep up with it this summer. I was doing it on the uh, fifth anniversaries of each episode. And those are like a week's worth of podcasts for each episode, sometimes short, sometimes like five, 10, 15 minutes long, um, sometimes a little longer, but it's like, it sort of follows a formula where it's it looks at the uh, goes story by story. It looks at the current events that took place at the time. I share some past work on the show. I break down character rankings. I get into the sort of the weeds and get really wonky with it. Like who has the most screen time in episodes. And so I have a lot of fun with it. And I do illustrated companions on my site where there's like screenshots for every topic and stuff and you can kind of scroll through as you're listening or before or after so hopefully that will resume with part 11 around november 6th or so i guess that's that's scheduled now but i gotta get to work on uh we're recording this in mid-october i gotta get to work on getting ahead on that 
And I'll be sure to put links in everything for once this episode released. But I want to say thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. There's just so much to discuss with a character who, as we said, is not in it all that much, but always seems to be at the heart of it. Together, forever, just you and I, just you and I. And if I can, I actually want to take a little aside before we get back to Sarah and uh, read a passage from her Wikipedia, because it's it's like uh, just kind of her, her circle is kind of fascinating. Um, let me see where it is. It's not the early life, I don't think, personal life. Hmm. I guess I'll read my, um, when I wrote my character study of Sarah, uh, I do a, like a bio of each actor. So mm-hmm. the Grace Zabriskie one, I, I kind of summarized, I guess it was from the Wikipedia and a few other places. So let me just read that and uh, give you a sense of that. Sarah Palmer. So this is uh, this was how I kind of summarized what I learned about Grace Zabriskie when I was writing my uh, Sarah Palmer character study. Zabriskie crossed many interesting paths in her 75 years, many linking back to David Lynch or Twin Peaks. She springs from a fascinating family. Her father owned a legendary New Orleans gay bar, Cafe Lafitte in exile, and was acquainted with Tennessee Williams, Gore Vidal, and Truman Capote. Her mother was related to the 19th century Californian railroad tycoon James Zabriskie. Her sister worked for District Attorney Jim Garrison of JFK conspiracy fame, allegedly using Garrison's Xerox to print up the first edition of the countercultural Principia Discordia in 1965, which founded the parody religion Discordianism. One of the authors of that text, Carrie Thornley, a.k.a. Lord Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst, was in love with Grace Zabriskie. Wikipedia humorously contrasts their accounts of their relationship. Thornley claimed to have had an eight-year-long off-again-on-again affair, friendship, rivalry, ego game, karmic unraveling with her, though Zabriskie described it as four and a half minutes in bed. Thornley started a novel about Zabriskie titled Can Grace Come Out and Play in the 60s? Incidentally, this was not the first time Thornley based a book on the life of one of his friends. Thornley's manuscript Idle Warriors about his buddy from the Marines was finished a year before the Kennedy assassination. I only mention the timing because that buddy from the Marines was Lee Harvey Oswald. So <laughs> there's this really bizarre web of like characters and people where it's like some guy who was obsessed with her also wrote a book about Lee Harvey Oswald, like before he was the assassin of JFK. Like what? Um, I don't know. It always comes back to the Kennedy assassination, I guess with the Lynch verse. 